Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Sister Gable and I'm the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is Heaven. Oh, heavy metal haired was the phrase I was grasping for. <laughs> gourmand. Okay. Heavy metal haired gourmand. I don't think, I don't know, I don't know if the first part applies, if ever it did. I don't it, know if you've noticed. It, oh, it's short, it's still, it's still, you still rock out. Pia <laughs> Lenarduzzi, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank uh, you. I'm working out my Christmas dinner. Right. If I have pasta pesto for my Christmas dinner, will you applaud my embracing of Italian culture or will you be appalled? Well, I mean, I think I'm not here to, you to, are. to pass I feel, judgment. You if, are. But I would say... Where do you stand on pesto? Have, but I love pesto. Proper it's one pesto. of my favourites. Ah, what do you make of uh, of the, the British um, jarred variety? I don't. Have you ever had it? it? Yeah, I have. At university, someone made it yeah. for me. Do you like it? Made it for me? That, no, no, not, it doesn't, no, that doesn't count. You stir, <laughs> you stir, you stir, it yeah, yeah, stirred yeah. it for me. No? No. Uh, what, how does it, what does it lack in comparison to the... And it's just completely different. It's also weirdly fine, isn't it? Yeah, it's like it's, a paste. It's a paste. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just... What I should think, it be? Very rough and... Well, I mean, it depends. And it depends on whether you're talking about green or red. Is red is red accurate? Red is a, is a southern thing. Yeah, because what about things like uh, coriander pesto and aubergine pesto and well, red I mean, chili pesto? Is that, is that abomination? I, mean, I think you, you can do whatever you want, really, oh, can't you. you? I mean, it, you know. <laughs> do they though? Even, yeah, I mean, yeah, people will be doing that as well uh, Genoa, these days. Is coriander is not a very yeah. It's from Genoa. Uh, coriander is not a very popular herb in Italy. Still, a lot like of it. Italians really don't like it. Is it genetic? My mum has to specifically request it at the supermarket because otherwise they don't tend to get it in. Did you know there's a genetic <laughs> thing about coriander? Or genetic. Oh, what? Whether you like it or you don't. Yeah, it, well, I didn't know that. No. It, I, 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 I didn't used to like it. And then you changed. And then I moved here, and I slowly acquired. A people taste can for it. can no, tweet at me to say I'm wrong, but I've got a feeling there is a disposition. Some people taste coriander in a certain way, and other people taste it in a different way, and therefore, it, it, based on that predisposition, right. it's either it's either particularly nice or not. It tastes. Well, a lot of people say soapy, yeah, and I used to, to think people. it was soapy, so maybe but it I changes. don't anymore. Yeah, it can definitely change because I'm living proof. You're of living that. proof. Is there a piece to be written about <laughs> co- <laughs> cori- coriander? I think, I think someone would transcribe that maybe, and that's, that's, that's the end yeah, of it. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> um, if you're not a subscriber, here's how to get a cheap subscription, and it's even easier than ever before. Just do this, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer, the-tls.co.uk 
co.uk forward slash podcast offer wherever you are in the world you can use that and you'll get five issues for five pounds or dollars or better still you could buy several subscriptions for friends and family the gift of knowledge or at least an approximation of it for christmas Speaking of approximating knowledge, we're recording this just two days before the general election here in the UK, but we will try not to mention it too much, I promise. We will talk instead about the following. The life of Oliver Sacks. One of my favourite TV writers ever, Jonathan Lynn, who wrote Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, was Sacks's cousin, and he'll share his memories of the man. We might get him to talk about the election too, I suppose. Our favourite rollerblading Jay Knight, Devony Lozer, is on the line, known to her friends as Stone Cold Jane Austen, to talk about a new discovery of a pen portrait of the great author and Anna Picard has read Anne Boyer's memoir of modern illness and considers the idea of literature about cancer. She'll be in the studio. If you close your eyes and imagine Jane Austen, you'll probably see the face we now have on the £10 note. This shows her in her youth, looking off into the distance with pretty ringlets playing across her forehead, framing large eyes, a small straight nose and neat lips. This is, as Devony Loser puts it in this week's issue, a happier, cleaned-up version of a watercolour painting by Austen's sister Cassandra. Indeed, Cassandra's painting, the £10 note, and a second painting by Cassandra of, unhelpfully, the back of her sister's head, are the only definite likenesses we have of the writer. Just three definitely Janes. Until... Perhaps now. Devony Loser may well just have discovered a new image of Jane Austen to add to what little we have, a 5,000-word pen portrait of the mature writer written in 1823. And what's more, it was hiding in plain sight. On the line to tell us more now is Devony Loser. Hello, Devony. Hi, Thea. Hello, Stig. Glad to be here. Um, before we get to your exciting discovery, we should probably set the scene just a little. Um, I've mentioned the definitely Jane paintings, but there are some maybe Jane paintings too. And it's all pretty contentious, isn't it? I mean, it's, this is a very high stakes game. It absolutely is. And the, the three maybes include the silhouette that we've seen everywhere. And even the National Portrait Gallery labels that one as a possibly. The Rice portrait, the so-called Rice portrait, because it's in the Rice family, has been handed down through them, which many, many uh, words spilled in debate over that one, which is a young girl with a parasol. And then finally, the one that was the subject of a show by the BBC, the Unseen Portrait, which is, some call it an imaginary portrait of a, a writer with a church and a cat. We struggle to, it's a bit like with Shakespeare, you always think, well, Shakespeare, the biggest figure in um, English literature, no one actually knows what he looks like, no sense of how accurate the likenesses that are of him. And this is even true, even the ones that are definite paintings of Jane Austen, we've got no sense of how like the actual woman they might be, do we? No, we're all using our imagination, I think, when we picture her in our mind's eye and selecting which image we, we prefer to imagine her with. That does also mean that we have loads of hopefuls. I love that um, the National Portrait Gallery has dozens of correspondence files that are devoted to queries and claims about Austin portraits. People just sending oh, things in and saying, oh, please. In their oh, did you sift through them? 
I did. I did. I can't say I read all 12 folders with <laughs> equal care, <laughs> uh, but they're, they're fascinating and just show so many years of people wishing that they had an Austin portrait and the National Portrait Gallery's representatives dashing their hopes. You just imagine people at car boot sales sort of finding a portrait vaguely of the right time, a woman sitting near some books and yeah, saying, holding like, a pen. I think yeah. this yeah. might be Jane Austen. Right. Or, you know, one wrote in and, and the uh, the keeper wrote back and said, well, the fact that she's got a book and is sitting in a library really isn't enough evidence that this is Jane Austen. Wow. Outrageous. Um, to add to Cassandra's portraits, there's also the pen portrait, isn't there, um, from 1817, five months after Jane Austen died, her brother Henry gives us this description, which became a kind of defining version, really. But I mean, that that was not without its agenda, was it? Right. And for many years, it was the only description readers had to go on solidly about what she'd look like, this description from her brother. And it was very, uh, very sweet, very cleaned up, very proper. He said he ne- she never uttered a, a mean word in her life, you know, this kind of thing that I think readers now look at with skepticism brightly. And we really didn't know how readers looked at it then until I think this new piece. Well, so enter Devaney Loser, Indiana Jones-like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell us what you found. So in 1823, in the Periodical Ladies magazine, there is a mock letter to the editor. But it becomes clear pretty soon, pretty immediately into reading this piece, that it's a work of fiction. She says she lives in Little Chatterton, which is a, a fake place, I think, making fun of women's gossipy reputations, and describes how she very much would like to write like Jane Austen. The middle third of the piece specifically speculates on Austen's looks and her writing habits. But what's clear from this piece is that the first piece uh, was from 1823, a full, almost a full century before we thought it was happening. And does that Austin-inspired pieces of fiction were happening. And does the fact that this is fan fiction make you more sceptical or less sceptical of his authenticity as a record of what Austin may have been like? I feel somewhere in the middle about it. What I would say is that it looks as if it was probably the work of a writer, Mary Russell Mitford, very well known in her own day, now less known in our own. But she had a kind of connection to Austin. Her mother knew the Austin family, and she was close friends with someone who'd known Austin in life. So it's quite possible, and we've known this about Mitford, it's quite possible that Mitford had you know, eyewitness accounts of what Austin was like. And And so so if this piece is by her, it could be based on factual accounts. And so what impression, because of course, the great thing about a pen portrait rather than a, you know, a portrait that just shows us what she might have looked like physically is that there are these kind of judgments of character and and morality even. So if Henry was making her seem all, you know, very virtuous and and neat and tidy, what impression is Jane Fisher, so-called, wanting to convey? I think Jane Fisher gives us a professional genius, is what she gives us in this piece. And she describes especially her nose of genius, Jane Austen's (laughs) nose of genius, which I love this phrase. And it describes what she wore and what times of day she wrote her novels, which is, you know, exactly the kind of thing I think we now get as a kind of stereotypical question of an author, right? When do you like to write? Where do you write? What time of day? What do you wear while you're writing? In 1823, this fictional writer is wanting to know these very things about Austen and claims to have found them out through people who knew her. And the romantic reality, if we believe her, is that Jane Austen wasn't sort of sedately going down to the drawing room after breakfast and writing for a few hours. She was doing that, but also scouring off at night and maybe writing romantically by candlelight. 
Absolutely. This describes Jane Austen writing for several hours after going to bed. And Jane Fisher, again, this fictional voice, says that she has it on good authority from people who knew Austen, who at this point in 1823 has only been dead for five years or so. She has it on good authority that this is what Austen did, that she was writing during the day, but she was also writing of an evening at bedtime. Do you care, Devney? Because, you know, you, you devoted your life to Austen. You are an uber Austen aficionado. Does this information make any difference to you at all? Well, I think it's it's like a, a lightning bolt. <laughs> you know, I think it tells us, first of all, that people cared what she'd look like, that she had fame in the 1820s. And in, until quite recently, we said she really didn't have fame until 1870, which is just clearly wrong. But even this period when she was supposedly obscure, the 1820s, she obviously had a fan following. So it's important for that reason. But it's also important, I think, to show us that there were people who were humorously responding to the Austen family's pent portrait and disappointed that there was no author portrait provided in the 1818 posthumous edition of Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. And indeed, we should point out that the, the date attached to the letter that you've told us about is is the 1st of April, isn't it? Yes. So the edition of Ladies Magazine that this came out in was April 30th, 1823. And the letter is signed April 1st. And so April Fool Day existed even then. And it clearly we're supposed to mean this as a joke. But the question is how much of the fiction provided here is based in fact. I don't know that we'll ever know. But the fact that that's even a question we can ask is amazing. Why do we think, because um, we've got a piece with your article by Paula Byrne, which talks about the fandom, the online fandom of Jainites as they're known. Uh, she does attract them, doesn't she? She attracts people who are obsessive fans in a very modern sense of the word. Yes, and I, I think, you know, fan culture has been described by scholars with uh, more dismissiveness than is warranted. Fans are often quite well informed yeah. <laughs> and better informed than some scholars. The enthusiasm you're describing is more okay, I think, among Jainites than it is among scholars. Most of us don't get together and talk about how much we love what we do, but maybe we should. Maybe we should. And also, why does she attract it? Because I was thinking for the column I wrote for the paper that she attracts it more than any comparable figure. That people like Dickens, and some people are, you know, really uh, embrace Dickensianism. But I don't think there is a culture around Dickens or Hardy or Eliot in the way that there is around Jane Austen in terms of celebrational aspects of, of you know, genuine love in that way. Do you think that's fair? I, I do think that's fair. And I, I think obviously it has to do with her gender and with the history of women and women's writings. I think many of her fans are female. There ought to be more men reading her, I think. <laughs> I read it, Devonie, don't worry. I, I read, I read I, as you know, I read Pride and Prejudice on a semi-regular basis. I love that, Stig. I just, to, you know, again, to wax enthusiastic here, uh, which I'm not afraid to do. I think that's fabulous. And there's a long history of men who've been Jainites. So you're you're in good company. That's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, but I, I think the, the fact that she's read and beloved means that the kinds of things that she's writing about continue to speak to us. I think she's a social critic. She's an ironist. She's funny. But she also writes about things that are deeply important to us as individuals. Well, and here now we have a, another way of getting to know her. Now we have her, her novels, which are sadly not as many as we would we would love to have, but um, we have an alternative take on her and it is really funny. And am I right in thinking that we'll be able to read the full 5,000 words of the letter somewhere soon? My understanding is that it will be hosted on the TLS website. It will. I, okay. Yeah, it's a, about the middle third of the piece deals directly with Austin. The rest of it is quite funny. Perfect. Uh, so the whole 5,000 
word piece is worth a worth a gander. Um, and there is a scholar who I've, I learned last week when the piece was in proof, who's been working on this piece, who also knew of its existence. Uh, and we both didn't realize that we were working on this. And that's Professor Jenny Batchelor at the University of Kent. And she is working on a book chapter that'll be about this piece, comparing it to the defense of novels in Northanger Abbey, which I think is a really terrific connection. Excellent. Well, and we'll look forward to that as that's well. That's enthusiasm again, Devony. That's, that's, that's <laughs> genuine enthusiasm for, for colleagues, which is, is to be much encouraged, isn't it? Absolutely. Why would we not? Exactly. The more the merrier. That's a good spirit. Devony Lozer, thank you very much indeed. Great to talk to you both. Bye. Bye-bye. Could it be patronising? Do you think there's a sort of slight... Not Devony, she's amazing, but the, the idea that, that when you look at the fandom Paula Burns piece, there's a... Do you think patronising of who? Jane Austen, that... Because she's a, you know, being Jainites annoys me that you don't call you don't call Dickens fans Charleses. Yeah. You don't call Shakespeare people Williamers. You mean because they're they're silly, excited women? No, that they regard her as a, a woman that can be sort of termed and and, and they do it the same with Emily Dickinson. The two no, most literary people who are known by their first names mm. are Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson. I, I don't I don't know I don't think it's I think it's probably just about ownership, isn't it? And I suppose because precisely because Jane Austen doesn't have we don't have very many portraits of her and no one's really sort of written about her character and all of that sort of thing, then maybe people feel they can they can project onto her and make her into their friend. Which is maybe they do the same with Emily Dickinson, because again, you, yeah. know, you only know a certain... She called herself the myth at one point. Yeah, People exactly. can project themselves on her. All right, I'll, I'll get back in my box. <laughs> I'll shut up. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much. Like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How do you write about cancer is a difficult question. This week, Anna Picard reviews Anne Boyer's The Undying, a meditation on modern illness, which she says joins Audre Lorde's The Cancer Journals and Susan Sontag's Illness as Metaphor in the slender library of literary as opposed to journalistic responses to breast cancer. Boyer's reference points, according to Anna, are her work, her overwork, her pride in that overwork. The writings of John Cage, Elias Aristides, Carlo Ginsberg, John Donne, Lucretius, Virginia Woolf, Harriet Martineau, and then an 1859 painting by Thomas Couture. 
This is not a pretentious book, though. It is apparently lurid, righteous and goth. And Anna's review is a really beautifully written thing, too. She's with us in the studio now. Anna, hello. Hello. Um, is this an important book? How important, how different, how, how significant a book is this in your view? I'm glad you used the word important because I think it is important. Um, precisely because there is so little that's written from a more literary perspective about the experience of being di diagnosed with and being treated for breast cancer and indeed survivorship, which is something that she touches on towards the end. I look upon these books as being a sort of map. They're clues as to how to find your way through thinking about things which you you don't necessarily get from the pamphlets that you're given when you're diagnosed, as indeed she points out. She gets handed something called Your Oncology Journey, and it has a picture of a smiling, silver-haired woman on it, and um, she's 41. And that's and she thinks, well, this has got nothing to do with me. You quote Deborah Orta about the tyranny of positivity, and is there a sense that there's a lot of... Unre there's kind of a combination of unreality and cliché about how people deal with cancer or are expected to deal with cancer, this book tries to undercut that or, or oppose that? I think it's an extremely strange experience, I have to say, because, uh, like her, I felt perfectly well before my lesions, as they call them. They, they change the words around. You don't talk about tumours, you talk about lesions. Oh. Before they showed up on the ultrasound, and another thing that she also points out is that the ultrasound experience is something that... If you've had children, you associate with pregnancy, and the whole thing operates as a sort of strange mirror image, but it's not a mirror you want to be looking into. It's sort of crazy mirror territory. You call it a distracted mirror image of pregnancy. Uh, does that strike you when you were, when you were reading this? Does, does she bring that out, or do you bring that out in your own mind? Both of us did. She had a different form of cancer to mine and different treatment protocol, but there's a lot of resonance there's a lot of common ground and particularly she's she's marvelous about dreams and I, I like the looseness of form if in the review I referred to her having a sort of Laurie Moore lightness of touch but it's also slightly reminiscent of um, Joanna Walsh's book um, Hotel in that sort of free form and is it beautiful Parts of it are definitely beautiful. May I read a bit? Yeah, please do, okay. please do. This is a little section which is called Communique from an ex-urban satellite clinic of a cancer pavilion named after a financier. <laughs> Pull your hair out by the handfuls in socially distressing locations, Sephora, Family Court, Bank of America, in whatever location you do your paid work while in conversation with the landlord at Leavenworth Prison, however, in the gaze of men. Negotiate for what you need, because you will need it now more than ever. If these negotiations fail, yank your hair out of your head in front of those who would deny you. Leave clumps of your hair in the woods, on the prairies, in quick-trip parking lots, in front of every bar at which your conventionally feminine appearance earned you and your friends pitchers of domestic beer. Uh, as you, I mean, as you say, there's not that much writing out there for people to read, there's, you mentioned Audrey Lord and, yeah. and Susan Sontag. Where does she sort of fall? It seems that she falls closer to Audrey Lord. Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, uh, Susan Sontag's book is, is is about cancer and culture, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit, and I think I've admitted in the pages of this magazine, that when I reread it last year, um, when I was searching for something like this to read, actually, I had only read the bits about tuberculosis because they related to La Traviata, which is <laughs> opera, and opera is my field. Sontag does not 
refer to herself personally as a as a cancer sufferer. I mean, all of these words are so difficult. Sufferer, survivor, Battling. dreadful. Well, <laughs> Badly, I think oh, Audrey Lord does use the word warrior, no, she, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she, she kind of links the two things. She links cancer and her feminism somehow. They have like a metonymic relationship. Absolutely, yes. And I also read Audrey Lord last summer. And the thing about Audrey Lord is that she caused a stir immediately after her mastectomy by refusing to wear this to sort of even even her up in her in her brassiere. Whereas Anne Boyer embraces fully the idea of wigs, for instance, because she does not want to be legible, instantly legible as someone who has cancer. Is, is this consoling? Is it supposed to be consoling or is it trying to kind of not smooth the edges? Because in, in smooth edges you get cliché, which again seems to be not what she's trying to, 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 to do here. It was consoling to me because what she does describe very, very beautifully is this desperate urge to hang on to one's work, one's cultural life, and, you know, even one's physical appearance. You, you can very quickly get submerged into, the, in, into a world of absolute meekness. Yeah when you're being treated for something. She's not meek. Um, she describes herself as non-compliant. Um, um, and she's, she's doing these sort of little mini acts of resistance all the time, writing about poetry and the prayer card slots at the clinic and things like that, and, and refusing to be brave, refusing to do the whole pink ribbon thing. Yeah. There's a film out at the minute which I saw because I had to interview the actress in it called Ordinary Love. You're aware of this? Liam Neeson uh, is, is oh, it? Oh, yeah. Um, Leslie Manville. Leslie, Leslie Manville, who's the lady I interviewed. Amazing actress. They're both brilliant in it. It's very, very hyper-realistic. It's very short, and it's a kind of hyper-realist. So, so you see mammograms, you see the process of a breast cancer diagnosis in intimate, very low-key detail. And I was trying to wonder, uh, the, the issue I, I was trying to be interested in is how do you make art out of that? It, it is, is a fidelity and accuracy enough? I'm just, maybe it's easy. No, I don't think it is. And I, th I, I think that's what the gift of this book is. It opens up a more fantastical perspective. Because, you know, one's brain is not super, super ordered. You, you, you might spend all day um, trying to read up as much as you can about oncology or chemotherapy, but there, there, there are also little corners of your mind where you're running on off in all sorts of different directions. I must say I've resisted going to see Ordinary Love, but I did watch a French series called uh, Mythomanie, where an ignored mother and wife um, basically fakes breast cancer. I thought I was going to find that horrific, instead of which I found that character incredibly sympathetic. Because she was at least encountering the issues around femininity, motherhood, being a woman, as well as cancer. Yes, I think so. I mean, it's it, it's a fairly light piece, but it's done quite cleverly. Yeah, I didn't. I think ordinary Netflix. love. Netflix. <laughs> oh, well, ordinary love. I think is out of the cinema. I mean, in, I'm not sure. I mean, I'd be fascinated if you ever did see it, what you made of it, because to me, it was so fastidiously accurate and beautifully acted. But I just wonder what, what would make you want to see that, because it's, a, it's, it's sort of documentary in some ways. I think the problem is, I mean, from what I understand about that film, it is, is you're talking about fastidiousness and accuracy, but there are so many different types of breast Very cancer. True. It can only be accurate to, you know, one person's treatment and one person's diagnosis. And, and also the Leslie Manville character has the Liam Neeson character. Anne Boyer didn't, and I didn't, and it doesn't always work out like that. No, and do you think there is a temptation, even with in good faith, to homogenise 
what we consider of people's experiences of cancer to put you in the cancer box to sort of say you've had cancer the whole pink ribbon thing you talk about that's what it is and having rough edges having individuality is, is an answer to that I think the more perspectives that one can read the better off you are and I certainly think that um, in an age when we're constantly bombarded with you know pictures of brave survivors sort of showing just enough cleavage from behind their cupcakes on charity calendars it's quite nice to see a bit of a bit of righteous rage in there i love that expression lurid righteous and goth that's hers yes and it's what she wanted to be yeah she said if suffering's like a poem i want mine to be lurid righteous and goth is suffering like a poem is that is that is that a how tenable I, i thought that was a fascinating statement to make and she's obviously earned the right to make that but if someone who hadn't experienced it said it you wouldn't you could argue is it where are we going here are we going into the sort of after breast cancer there can be no poetry well i mean mean, she's a poet she's gonna write poetry yeah i just think it's it's not just poetry it's polemic as well it's polemic and it's an essay it's a big i'm always saying suffering like a if suffering is like a poem that is a big it seems to me a, a big statement to make it's an interesting statement to make is it only like a poem if you're a poet it's not something you can prove or disprove. No, but it's it's an interesting assertion to make. I don't think it's a. It's not. A, that's not a. That's not a common observation. I wouldn't have thought. Uh, no, it's not a common book though either. And she she does go. I mean, it, she's talking about how to describe pain. She says uh, pain can also be described by its duration, its magnitude, its locations, its relations, its variations, its disruptions, its histories, its temperatures, its haptics, its memories, its patterns, its pressures, its sympathies, its forms, its purposes its references, its causes, its economics, its forgettings, its dimensions, its categories, its effects. She goes into a lot of description about pain. There's a book, have you read a book, Elaine Scarry, called The Body in Pain? Do you remember that book? It was from the 80s. I remember seeing it on people's shelves. No, I haven't read it. Uh, One of the lines that it's always living me is is that when you're in pain, it's a definition of certainty because you Mm. know about pain, but to hear about someone else's pain is always a definition of doubt. Because (laughs) however much you describe your pain... I can never experience it. I never know what your thresholds are. I don't know. We will never experience the same pain. It's impossible to do that. Absolutely. And to a certain degree, I th- I'm quite glad I, I wasn't reading this as a patient waiting to hear if I had to have chemotherapy or not. But in, certainly in terms of the after effects of the mastectomy and, and the brutal way in which it's carried out in, in, in the United States, unless you've got a huge amount of money behind you. I think in terms of the, the psychological uh, impact, it's a very smart and a very interesting book because you do get a bit lost. Yeah. And this is about her trying to... Uh, I'm putting words in her mouth now, but I think this is about her trying to hold on to herself, hold on to those bits of herself, that, that intoxication with overwork that she describes. Well, it's a fascinating uh, piece, Anna. Thank you so much for, for coming and talking about thank it. Thank you. Scott Sherman in this week's TLS begins his review of a new biographical memoir by Lawrence Weschler by asking a legitimate question. Why is Oliver Sacks, who died in 2015, revered around the world? Was it the velvety prose of the author of bestsellers like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat? Was it the bookish context in which he wrote, the most literary analyst since Freud? Was it the combination of avuncular exterior and troubled interior life that made him relatable or likeable? Well, one person we can ask is the writer Jonathan Lynn, who was Oliver Sacks' cousin. He's written a funny and charming memoir himself of the man in the TLS this week and joins us on the line now. Jonathan, hello. 
Hello. Um, we should start with that question actually posed. Why do you think he was so revered? What made him feel so great to so many people? Well, I don't know. It took a very long time. I mean, for the first half of his career, he was almost unemployable in the medical profession. Why is because that? Because he was rather unconventional personally. He was sort of huge and muscular and rode motorbikes, and he was nearly fired from Cedar sinai Hospital in his early days in Los Angeles because he had a dying patient who wanted to go on a motorbike ride, so Oliver took him out on a motorbike ride. Amazing. And uh, he died three weeks later, but Oliver got terrible trouble for removing this patient from the hospital. Oliver's view was the man was dying and this is what he wanted to do. But he was always a bit unconventional. He really, really did think about what did the patient want rather than what did the profession want. Do you think that made him what it was, actually, that, that view on I, I think I think it is. Um, I mean, the thing about Awakenings, which was his perhaps his most celebrated book, although not the biggest seller, is that it was the first time that anyone had really talked about medicine in a holistic way. Doctors always used to think about the body as a kind of car. And if you fix the, the part that was broken, then you were all right again. But Oliver took the view that illness changed you no matter what, good outcome or bad outcome, you were changed by the experience and that the whole patient had to be taken care of. And that was a very original and unpopular view, actually, when he started, uh, when he put that forward in Awakenings. You know, as his books became more and more popular after the man who mistook his wife for a hat, the public sort of fell in love with his writing and the critics. And as a result, the medical profession uh, took another look and had a rethink, and he started becoming respectable in his old age. How did you come to get to know him? Because you were 14 when, when you first met him. I was 14 it? when I first met him because I grew up in Bath. He, he'd been in London and then at Oxford. Our families were somewhat in touch, but Oliver and I had just somehow never met. And I met him at a family wedding, I think it was, um, and we were sitting next to each other. I don't know why, because we had very little in common, but I suppose we were both younger generation or, or something. The cousin's table, um, all weddings have them. <laughs> he, he was 24, I was 14, so we were, and, and our conversation was stilted, and finally he said to me, as grown-ups always do, what are you doing at school? So I listed my O-levels, and when I said botany, he got very excited because people often don't realise that Oliver was as interested in in botany and in chemistry as he was in uh, neurology. So he said, what do you think of Mendel's theory? And I, I didn't really know anything about Mendel's theory except that it was something to do with a dominant or recessive P. <laughs> and I, I'd never met either, though I ate a lot of peas. I'd never come across dominant or recessive peas. And, so I said, what, I don't know what mental theory is, what is it? And he was so horrified by this lack of absolutely basic knowledge <laughs> that we didn't really speak again for the rest of that lunch, and then I didn't see him again for another 10 years. <laughs> and when you did see him, did you then click? Was it as straightforward as that? Well, that, when I saw him again next, I was newly married. We were having supper with his father, my Uncle Sam, who was also our doctor, and we got along rather well with him. Oliver came in. I didn't know who he was to start with. This enormous biker in black leather came in, and um, 
sat down and then he said hello pop and when we realized that uncle sam this was must be oliver uncle sam did have three other sons he that was the night he told us that he was going to be writing the new textbook on migraine in rhyming couplets <laughs> i'm but very sorry he didn't he didn't. He wrote the, he wrote a very important textbook on migraine at the time, but it wasn't a, in cup, rhyming couplets. And when I challenged him about this in recent years, he said, I didn't say that, did I? But when I said, yes, you did, he just chuckled. <laughs> and, and I realized that he did have a very acute sense of humor, and he did like saying things that were provocative and funny. It strikes me reading your, your essay that his, his own childhood wasn't, necessarily hugely happy he had a difficult time at school he had a difficult relationship with his mother as well that must have had an impact on 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 how he grew up and what what person he became i think it had a huge impact on him he was very unhappy at the boarding school he was sent to when he was about six he and his brother michael he thought that it was that experience that caused michael to eventually become schizophrenic They both arrived home from the school from which every other child had been taken away by their parents. But somehow his mother and his father didn't notice the bruises and the the fact that he'd been so thoroughly beaten by this headmaster. I think he suffered all his life from a feeling of abandonment. He tried to solve it in various ways. When he went to uh, America for the first time in his early 20s, I suppose after he was 24, probably 25, I'm guessing, he sent back a one-word telegram to his parents that just said, staying. And, and his brother, Marcus, went all the way to Australia to, to get away from... Because his mum was a, was a doctor, wasn't they? They were both doctors, his, his parents. But they she... were both doctors. They were very different. Sam, his father, was a very genial general practitioner, very warm and friendly. And um, his mother, Elsie, Dr Elsie Landau, was, I think, the first woman consultant at a London teaching hospital. She was very, very good doctor, apparently, very distinguished, and much loved by her patients, we're told, though she was rather cold with her own children. And when she found out that Oliver was gay when he was 17, he had admitted this to his father, because his father was saying, you know, I don't see you with many girls, you know, is everything all right? The next day, his mother came down for breakfast and said, you are an abomination and I wish you had never been born. And that was never mentioned again by either of them. He managed to re-establish a relationship with his mother when he wrote a book called A Leg to Stand On, which he was struggling with, and she helped him with that. And I think that helped a bit. But he he was always very anxious to be loved by her, and I don't think he ever was. I read somewhere um, that he, he he got his love of ferns from his mother, who had in turn got it from her father. Ferns? Yeah. That's quite possible. I don't know where he got that from. He was you know, a fanatical botanist. When he came to our house in L.A. once, Rita, my wife, was very proud of the garden, which was blooming and full of the most wonderful flowers. And he came in and looked at it and said, too many flowers. Oh, yeah, he doesn't like... He says they're too explicit, they're too much or something, flowers. He wasn't a fan of flowers. He just said, too many flowers. And we said, (laughs) what are you talking about? And he said, well, where are all the ferns? Where are the cycads? Where are the original... You know, he was sort of an originalist when it came to botany. And we went out to dinner and he saw a cycad, which was the food of dinosaurs, apparently. And I think he loved cycads because they were survivors. 
and he shouted stop the car and we he leapt out of the car and showed us this cycad in a pot outside a restaurant with the point that you make in this and, and you can maybe connect this to a, a sense of some form of deprivation emotionally in his childhood he was very voracious about everything you were saying that if he, if he did something yet a lot he pursued curiosity and intelligence voraciously he was all in is that is that what, what you remember of him that's exactly right he was all in for everything but the curious thing is that went along with an extreme personal shyness and sense of reservation so he had a great many friends but there was always a sort of wall around him um for nearly everybody except a very very few close friends like Jonathan Miller and Eric Korn, who he grew up with at, at St. Paul's School. He was shy, and there was a, and I think it was really because of the fact that he was gay, and in the days when he was a young man, that was still a criminal offence in Britain, and it was something you had to be very secretive about, and if any hospital found out you were gay, you'd never have a job. Yeah. And um, he was celibate for 35 years, until shortly before his, five years before his death, when he met somebody called... Billy Hayes, who he fell in love with in his late 70s, finally came out. It's not an entirely um, but, happy story, this, is it? He was a hypochondriac, which, again, feels someone who was so scientifically knowledgeable and so aware of the, the experiencing of diagnosing people. He was a hypochondriac himself again, which suggests a level of anxiety. Tremendous level of anxiety. Well, that's what made him such a fine doctor. He was totally empathetic with his patients. So many doctors, you know, are able to really remove themselves from their patient's suffering. And to some extent, you have to if you're a doctor, because you can't take on board everybody's suffering yourself or it would kill you. But Oliver did get very involved with his patients and cared about them very deeply. And he, it was interesting that his choice of work was often with people who were very, very sad, difficult cases and were people with frequently very little hope of recovery he just cared about them deeply and this is what made him such a special doctor and, and I think such a special writer about medicine because that care comes across in his books so clearly and in modern America and Britain I think where house calls are becoming a thing of the past and medicine has become so scientific and hospitalized the, the relationships with doctors are becoming rarer and rarer, good relationships with your doctor. That was what he was about. He was someone who just cared very deeply about his patients and then wrote about them so that other people would understand. When, you, when we went to his, uh, parties of his, for instance, you would meet some of his extraordinary patients. You know, there were people there with Tourette syndrome who were apparently quite out of control with what they were saying and doing. There was a man who couldn't find his limbs unless he could see them. He never dared fall asleep in the dark because he wouldn't know, he wouldn't be able to turn on a light because he didn't know where his hands were. It's a lovely, warm account of him, Jonathan. It's a great pleasure to talk to you about it. But before we go, though, you know, I probably should ask you about politics completely removed from this because you obviously wrote two of my favourite sitcoms ever Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister. We've spoken privately about my utter admiration for those things. We're two days out from a fairly depressing election, really, whatever side of the ball you favour, what do you make of it? Would you have been able to make a comedy out of this now? If you were writing Yes, Prime Minister again, would you have been able to make I a comedy? I don't know. It is so, it's so depressing. 
I think one has to make a comedy out of it because how else can you tolerate it? Nothing's going to be very good because of the shocking rise of nationalism. You know, nationalism and patriotism are not really quite the same thing. Patriotism on the whole is a good thing, I think. Nationalism is not. But you were writing Yes Minister at a time of massive political upheaval, all sorts of problems in Britain in the 70s. This this isn't of a different order of magnitude to that, is it? It's the same sort of thing. In fact, when the reason I return to Yes Prime Minister so often, it's the same arguments endlessly recycled. Jim Hacker was a sort of moral vacuum debating the same things, you know, not standing up to Europe, the famous episode where he becomes Prime Minister. None of this is any different, is it, Jonathan? I agree. Um, when we started writing Yes Minister, the inflation was running at 26% under the Callaghan government. And we wrote the first series while Callaghan was in power, if you can call that power, although it didn't go on the air until Thatcher became Prime Minister. And after that, of course, there was the miners' strike and all that social upheaval and all everything was going on with Thatcherism. But we weren't writing about politics. We were writing about government. We were writing about the processes of government and how the civil service really, at that time, ran the country. Um, and in our view, um, although subject to criticism, it was sort of necessary because the politicians were so inept. The ineptitude has increased quite exponentially since then. The civil service has lost power. Sir Robin Butler, actually, who was Mrs. Thatcher's private secretary at the time, when I met him, he then went on to be cabinet secretary later, told me that he thought maybe the Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister was partly responsible for the civil service's current lack of influence. <laughs> well, that, well, there's a legacy for you, Jonathan. You've, you, you've <laughs> contributed to, to ruining Britain. Well, so I know I felt very, very bad about that. And I don't know if it's true, but I, I, I fear it may be. I think we, um, we drew attention to what made the country somehow stagger along. And now the country is run by politicians and their special advisors who... And there's nobody really who knows anything about anything other than the fact they went to university and then wanted to be in politics. And yet we still have to try to find a way to laugh at it. Because, to quote Oliver Sacks, the self who laughs is greater than the self who suffers, is momentarily outside the suffering self, liberated from it, laughing at it. Great. That's all we can hope for. <laughs> I, I, I agree. And I mean, I'm, I, I live in New York and, and where we have Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, I mean, I've just written a long, funny piece about, I think it's a funny piece about Donald Trump. And that's quite hard because he is, you know, so profoundly offensive in every way. And the only th way you can, in a way I know to deal with any of these things as a writer is just to laugh at them. But I don't know exactly how I would go about portraying what's going on in Britain. Where to start? Yeah. Well, we might come back to you on Donald Trump, Jonathan. That's a subject for an entirely uh, different podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much indeed for asking me. I've enjoyed it. You probably, I grew up, my I probably missed the first two series of Yes, Minister, but my parents loved it. There wasn't anything on television then. And I remember as a kid of like seven or eight watching reruns with them. Say, well, we had videos. Yeah. We had it on video. Do you remember watching it? Yeah, I do. And it's it's amazing. I've got the scripts, and uh, he turned the scripts into a book. The book's a di fictional diary of Jim Hackett. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, mm. it's a, but it's amazing. It's the same stuff. It's what do we do with the NHS? What do we do about yeah. Europe? What do we do about smoking? What do we do about sugary foods? It's nothing ever changes. Yeah. 
maybe that's depressing. Maybe you shouldn't have talked about life imitating art and, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the Oliver Sacks thing was, was fascinating. Did you read really much of good. him? Did you read much of him? Um, I read the Oaxaca Journals and the Man Who Mistook His Wife. Yeah, I read the second one. Um, but the Oaxaca Journals I was thinking about recently because of his dislike for flowers and how he thought that he used to call dandelions damn yellow composites. DYCs. It's a funny thing to. Yeah. You just really took against them. Flowers. <laughs> of all the things. Well, I think that's great. There's lots of plenty wrong in the world. Well, the world can't be that bad if you can take against flowers. <laughs> Maybe that's how we'll deal with it. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Jonathan Lynn, to Anna Pickard and to Devony Lozer, Stone Cold Jane Austen. If you're voting this week, I hope you get all that you wish for. Next week, we'll look back on the last decade in culture. So just a small show there. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.